Hi, this is Dave Mason. You're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. And so when I came up with the music, I just had it on my iPhone. I always I always imagined um, Ringo playing on it, you know. I could hear him playing on it. And so I finished the song. I even had another friend of mine come and play drums on it, which sounded great, you know. But then I thought, oh, I'll just ask. I'll ask Ringo if, um, if he'll play on it. So I just, you know, um, did that. Uh, called and said... Um, would he play on the song? Yeah, send it over. Yeah, great. Today's guest is Colin Hay, a Scottish-born musician, singer, songwriter, and actor. He first came to prominence as the lead vocalist of the Australian rock band Men at Work. The group formed in Melbourne in 1978 and released their first LP, Business as Usual, in 1981. Their big break came in August 1982 when Minute Work toured Canada and the U.S. to promote the album supporting Fleetwood Mac. That October, their song, Who Can It Be Now, reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. In January 1983, they became the first Australian artist to have a simultaneous number one album and number one single on the U.S. Billboard charts with Business As Usual and the song Down Under. Their second album, Cargo, released in 1983, was also an international bestseller, spawning such hits as Overkill and Be Good Johnny. Their third album, Two Hearts, released in 1985, reached the top 20 in Australia and the top 50 in the U.S., preceding the band's breakup. During their time together, Minute Work won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist in 1983, and they were inducted into the Australian Music Hall of Fame in 1984, selling over 30 million albums worldwide. As a solo artist, Hayes' music has been used frequently by actor and director Zach Braff in his work, which helped establish a career rebirth for the musician in the mid-2000s. Hay has also been a recurring member of Ringo Starr and his all-star band. In 2015, Colin Hay, Waiting for My Real Life, a documentary film about the singer, debuted at the Melbourne International Film Festival. In 2022, he released his 15th solo album. Entitled Now and the Evermore, Ringo Starr played drums on the LP's title track. Welcome, Colin Hay. Welcome to the program. Can you tell us what turned you on to music? Well, I was surrounded by it, really, because my mother and father had a music shop in Scotland, the southwest coast of Scotland. 
school. Uh, they had this music shop between the years of 1950, 1958 and 1967. So, so I, was, I didn't have far to, to look. Um, everywhere, you know, I turned, there was something musical, pianos, guitars, drums, and uh, records, of course. Was the guitar your first instrument? The recorder. Actually, no, the piano. The piano, and of course, it's my biggest regret that I gave up piano because uh, I wanted to, to go out and, on the street and play football with my friends. And my father told me that I, I would always regret it, and he was right. And and so you're playing guitar at, at what? how early of an age? I, I took it up like around the age of 12. Okay, so it wasn't like when you were five or anything like that. <laughs> no, I played the piano for 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 a while, and then I, I, you know, they had recorder at school. But I think it was, I think I was probably around. I mean, it could have been a little bit earlier, but but that's my memory is that I started to take lessons from this uh, girl who was a bit older than me, who played the violin, and she could also play guitar, and so she lived in in the next town from me. So I used to go up on a Saturday morning and take lessons from her on a Saturday. So I was about 12 years old then, I think. Well, as you know, our show is called Everything Fab Four. Can you tell me about uh, your earliest moment when you heard of this thing called Beatles? Well, again, um, it was um, it was to do with the shop, with my mother's store. Um, I think I was... You know, I was nine, I think, when I first heard of the Beatles, um, when they first came out with, um, you know, of course, in in Britain, they had all the records, as, as I say, in, in the correct order, <laughs> not like they did over here. Um, so um, I was aware of Love Me Do, but um, She Loves You was the song that really still first got me and uh, interested in the Beatles. And from that point on, I was pretty hooked, really. And was that when you you really turned up your interest in the guitar or or was that already in progress? Um, It was, let me think, um, no, it was around the same time, really. Um, I learned how to play House of the Rising Sun, which is a great song to learn when you're first learning guitar because... It has quite a lot of different chords in it that you need down the bottom, basic chords, and it had the F chord, which is quite difficult to play when you first start when you first start playing. Um, I remember, uh, and I had a poster on the wall like everyone did, and George was playing a bar chord, um, and I, I was I was so fascinated with what he was doing because it looked like his fingers were doing all kinds of strange things. Of course, he was just playing. I think a G chord, you know, a bar chord. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really, um, you know, I loved the, uh, I just loved uh, in my rather, you know, innocent state at that particular time. I loved the way they sounded. It was, a, it was, it was just a world that I wanted to belong to in, in, in however and whatever way I could, you know, I wanted to, and, and they gave you, um, insight into the fact that there was another world apart from <clears throat> apart from the one that we knew you know which was um made up of what you of, of all your senses you know there was something else that existed you know which was somewhat 
you know, magical and exciting to me, you know. I think I first, I think that one of the songs which really, um, Strawberry Fields was later, of course, but, and that was released, I think, before I went to Australia, we emigrated to Australia, but I remember that song just being, um, having something that I just thought, oh, this is just, this is too much, you know, this is just incredible, what, what, just the way the song sounded, you know, and it coincided, I think, with uh, John Lennon bringing out um, Spaniard in the Works, the book uh, that he had that I just loved so much because it just, it played so much with the English language and it was just so fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I uh, teach a course here at Monmouth on uh, the life and times of the Beatles, really concentrating on the years of, of their musical production. And one of the things that's tough to explain to the students that you might have insight of, that you will have insight about, I know, is 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 she loves you when it comes out in August 1963 and breaks all sorts of UK records. Why was it that that song seems so different and galvanized people? Uh, I think it was probably a. Um a lot of things. It's never one thing, is it? It's always a combination of things that that comes to some kind of, um, you know, perfect storm of creativity or something. You know, um, and who can who can really say, you know, about what it was about that song? Um, if people really knew how to measure that or put it in a bottle, of course, you know, they would. But, um. It starts off with a drum fill, am I correct? Absolutely. And there you go. So there's Ringo who starts it. And then it starts off with a chorus, you know, which is very interesting also. So you've immediately got the hook of the song. Um, Girls, of course, imagined uh, that they were singing about them. And... um, I remember listening to that when I went to one of my first little dances that I went to. I think I was quite young and I went to this and I heard walking in and it was just full of, you know, kids my age. And um, it was just just so exciting. Um, It was, um, I think it was also um, that sound that they had, which was really greater than than each individual person. There was, you know, McCartney and Lennon, of course, great songwriters, great voices, um, and played the and McCartney played played the bass like nobody else, and 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 Lennon was a great, great guitar player. You know, perhaps people don't realize that what a great guitar player he was, but mm-hmm. but he was. And then you know the combination of them was one thing, but it, then it seemed to be, you know, when you used to listen to the Beatles, you'd think, well, who's that singing? And it was, when they would sing together, it was like something else. It was like a sound that you hadn't really heard before, you know, and it was just, it was just them singing together. And I guess they'd been singing together for, for three years pretty solidly. So I don't know, you just create this entity or something, you know, and, um, and they just, it was just that, and that song sparked up, sparked up the world. And, um, uh, it was it was really a it's also really a quite a you know it's more it's more of an intricate song than you than you'd than you imagine when you actually sit down and try and play it. It's really quite sophisticated in many ways. 
Well, that bit that George Harrison plays uh, to accent the chorus is staggering and hard to play. Down, 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 down. That's it. Yeah, that's tough yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, it's. You know, when you hear it, you think, "Oh, simple, not so simple." <laughs> no, it, not at all. And not not only is it not simple to play it. But imagine being the person who dreamt it up. Yeah, well, he did a lot. He did a lot of that. I talk a lot in class about authorship and what that means. And uh, no offense to Lennon and McCartney, but you know, when you look at their songs, uh, Ringo authors that great drum fill at the beginning of uh, not drum fill, but cadence at the beginning of "Come Together." It's not even the same song without it. Or Harrison over and over, particularly in those early years, is adding these accents and adornments like "please, please me." Those things carry the song. Yeah, I know. It's uh, well, that's a, that is a, that is a, a you know that's a subject in itself, isn't it? Um, what makes you know what makes a song? Um, it's very, very, very intricate and very interesting. And I don't know whether there is uh, one answer to that, but but definitely. Um, one of the great things that set them apart from a lot of other people, uh, especially where Ringo was concerned, is that, you know, of course he always played the song, but he has such amazing artistic instincts um, with whatever he played that they became, he wasn't really playing, I mean, he was playing the drums, obviously, and he loved the drums, but he played the drums like he was playing an instrument which was an integral part of the structure of the song not just he wasn't just playing a beat to the song you know all those parts are so memorable and integral and um and i'm sure they they didn't take that long to to come up with you know here's what i'm gonna play boom there it is and uh and uh no one else no one else did that and the same with uh well the same with all of them really but um especially George's parts were, as you say, um, completely memorable, and uh, as you say, part of the and and you can't really imagine that song without those without those sounds, without those riffs, without those lead parts, and everything else that he contributed. It was sure wonderful seeing George play in uh, in the new Get Back documentary, where you see him actually arranging with Billy Preston many of those songs in the last week or so. Did you get a chance to check out the Get Back doc? Yes, and um, how extraordinary that was, um, all of it. Um, I, I need to watch the whole thing again, uh, which, uh, which I really want to do soon. Um, but you realize, especially when you're watching the first one, you think to yourself, oh, it was, even if you're the Beatles, it was tedious a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there was a whole lot of nothing going on for quite, for, you know, for quite long periods of time, and um, that's what it, that's what it is to be in a band. And um, but everything that happened was, um, I mean, it was really extraordinary. A lot of things, you know, like just even trying, you know, trying to find the eight track uh, recorder and all all that business, and all oh, the Beach Boys have got the one that's, that's in town, and. Uh, and and those moments where uh, you know you couldn't really write it, where all of a sudden Billy Preston arrives and he, the first 
the first thing he plays is exactly what they need and exactly what they want, and you can just see it in their faces, and they go, oh, this is this is the, the missing ingredient. And so it was. It, it is. It's just magic to watch and to see what Big Mal <laughs> roaming in and out. My God, what a head. <laughs> what a head he had. What was it like for you to then move, like you said, halfway around the world or all the way around the world? Yeah, all the way around the world, pretty much. When, when you were so young, really, um, you, would have, what, you, you were 14 or 17? Yeah, 14, yeah. Well, that, that was a couple of things. That, that was a, a momentous year for me because Sergeant Pebble was released and, and, and I moved to Australia. So it was, you know, I was moving away from something. I was, I was moving away from the, from the you know, geographical center where that music was created. But I was moving towards something else, which was the other side of the world, which was the new world to me and, and somewhere which was, had its own kind of excitement, you know, uh, to it. So it was, um, but I remember just listening endlessly to that record during that year, you know, because it was, um, somewhat wistfully, you know, I, I didn't, my mother and father didn't have the shop anymore, but, but there was indeed a lot of fervor in, in Melbourne where I moved to. And indeed I met, some musicians straight away. And so I felt quite, you know, I felt quite at home quite quickly there when I, when I moved there. Were you already writing songs at that point? Yeah, I think I was at least just pretty soon after I got there, I started playing in this little folk club and um, I wrote some songs. People tell me I, I was writing songs, uh, you know, people who've known me for a long time, but to be quite honest, I don't really remember any of them. I wish I did, but I really, I really don't. I can't remember, you know, all those. There was quite a lot of songs that I wrote, but I, I don't really have, have any memory of them. You're in Australia now, and, and what brought you there? Was it a parental change in career or something? Or I, I don't. And my mother, and, my mother and father. Well, there was a lot of that, and from Britain in the '60s, people wanted to get away from Britain because it was so bleak and. Um, uh, my my father got sick of the weather and he wanted to you know have a better life for his family and they also offered um, an what they called an assisted passage which would only cost you ten pounds to go to Australia uh, for each person in the family so um, that was an added, that was a uh, an added impetus to go there because they the, the government of Australia needed to um, increase the workforce, you know, it was quite a, it was quite a racist kind of policy they had, you know, they only took, you know, people from Britain, white people. Um, and then they, they didn't realize that they weren't getting enough people. So they had to expand that over the, over the decades. But um, as, as they did, uh, uh, consequently, Australia became, became a, a much more interesting place, you know. So you find this music scene and, uh, it must be, is it, is it a while or is it pretty soon that you get into the kind of orbit that's going to create men at work? No, it's quite a long time. Really. I was, I played in a, I played in some school bands, you know, with friends of mine and, um, um, 
I always wanted to, I was always planning to to it wasn't something that I consciously thought oh I'm going to be a musician or I'm going to write songs or but that was just the the path that I saw in front of me and um my parents of course had different ideas and <laughs> and they wanted me to um you know, become a professional of some kind, but not not a professional musician. Although my father had been on the stage, and so he really knew what it was to be on the stage, but they didn't really want that for me. Or, or, or they, it was an interesting thing because they they supported me in the sense that they, you know, they paid for singing lessons for me um, when I was at school. But I think that that was all very well when it was seen to be something that I was doing as a hobby. But as soon as I, you know, was showing signs that I wanted to do it for a living, they, I think they got a little worried. But um, uh, so when I, you know, when I left school, I think uh, the early 70s, I, I went to, uh, I went up to Sydney to try and make it as a musician and a singer in a band. And, and, you know, I realized quite quickly that this was going to be harder than I thought it was going to be to, uh, achieve what I wanted to achieve. So I came back to Melbourne and, um, and I deferred, I had deferred uh, university, you know, so I, you know, I took taken a year off to, to go and try and make it <laughs> as a musician. And I came back to Melbourne pretty much with my tail between my legs. And I decided to go back to school, which pleased my parents. Uh, so I went, I went to university in, uh, in Melbourne and, uh, and I thought, well, if, while I'm there, I can plot and scheme and figure out how to how to get this music thing together. So I did a degree uh, in arts and, and you know so forth. Nothing really much. Nothing nothing that was going to nothing that was going to uh, you know do anything to help me get a job when I left university. But <laughs> it certainly gave me time to um, strategize, if you like, you know, and write songs and meet different people and. Um, so it was very good for that. I really enjoyed it for that reason. And um, plus, you know, I got an arts degree, which is, you know, whatever it is. It, it was, it, I finished it. And then I, and then I think that was around 77. And then I got a job as a, in the chorus of a, of a musical called Ned Kelly. And, and, um, and just before I went off to do that, I'd met uh, Ron Strike at the other guitar player in Men at Work. And, um, he was a beautiful 12 string guitar player and I just, a little light went off when I met him and um, said, you know, we should work together when I come back after doing this, uh, this the musical. So that's what we did. I came back and we started working as, as an acoustic duo and we, you know, wrote, wrote songs together and including Down Under and, and I uh, went from there and the band formed about a year after that. So it was really, you know, quite, 10 years or so before um, anything really happened where I could, you know, call myself a, a musician in any kind of professional capacity, you know, or, or, or semi-professional capacity. We'll be back with more from Colin Hay after these messages. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. We're back with Colin Hay on Everything Fab Four. I've had the pleasure to see you perform live many, many times and uh, also with Minute Work. I remember in 1982, um, Fleetwood Mac did a very short tour and... Uh, my father was wonderful and generous and took me and, but the highlight for us that night, as much as we both love, loved and love Fleetwood Mac was men at work whom I had not heard of. This was in, in Houston, Texas. Um, it was, uh, you know, you, you talk about earlier about how the Beatles sounded different. I really felt like men at work sounded different in 1982. I think we did. I think we did sound different. I think that was one of the reasons why people uh, took to us. It was a different sound, and we were certainly influenced by a lot of people, including including the um, including the Beatles. Obviously, I always had a great I always had a great love of melody and trying to you know just trying to string bits you know bits of songs together that made sense you know um, chordally and structurally. So I think a lot of that came from from um, listening to the Beatles so much and and what they did with you know bridges and middle eights and choruses and verses and so forth so um and uh, and also you know seeming simplicity you know a lot of people i think tend to th- sometimes think of us as being a band that there are songs that were quite simple but they were i think they were deceptively so but yeah that was a great tour um i think it was a two-month tour or something two or three months or, or two months at least where we opened up for Fleetwood Mac and that was a great education for us, you know. Um looking at Bino was was I think at the end of that tour ended up going to number one just as we finished that opening spot for Fleetwood Mac. So the the timing couldn't have been better. Well it was an incredible night of music, quite frankly. I mean there was I remember your set because it had and and this is I think true of your entire canon of work it it has an emotional range to it you know there's there's sadness there's beauty there's whimsy there's humor you know there's um fun it's all there uh and so there was a taste of that certainly that night and then of course you got to watch Lindsay buckingham drive this band <laughs> that was our big eye opener for fleetwood mac we had no idea that he really drove that band in the way he did yeah, especially especially then it was it was he was you know he was in his prime, <laughs> right with that one little guitar. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Rick uh, the uh, the uh, Model One. That's right, made by Rick Turner. Yeah. <laughs> now, did the you know? I, and he was in his um, his uh, Mirage video, you know, for Hold Me outfit the entire time. I recall. Did uh, h- how did the the video age help Minute work? Well, it was, I wouldn't say, it was more than the icing on the cake, but it was, um, it was you know, instrumental in, in cementing our success, that's for sure, because um, we, were, we were first and foremost a radio band because the radio really started playing our music um, pretty solidly and pretty heavily um, before MTV uh, 
picked up on us. But of course, MTV had just was just starting, and they didn't have all that many videos at that time. To be honest, not that many people made them. But um, but they really played us because we were playing on the radio because we were already getting played on the radio. I don't know whether they would have done the same if if the songs hadn't have been uh, making having a major impact um, at radio. So. But it was really, again, uh, very synchronistic and very um, a perfect storm of events that, that caused our, our seemingly overnight success, you know. <laughs> a 10-year overnight success for Colin Hay, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then some. I, I do think the timing makes so much sense because there was so much 80s music that would follow you that I don't think had the same level of complexity. So you sort of did have a platform that belonged to you there for a moment. Who can it be now is in constant rotation. I recall as a kid watching MTV and then down under, of course, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so how does a band like that run its course? You guys, I suppose, stopped working together. Was it around 1988 the first time? No, it was over really quickly. We um, the band was done really at the end of 1983. Mm. Yeah, um, we never really we never really played together as a band after the end of 1983. Um, so it's very short lived. It only it lasted from the middle of around the middle of '79 until the end the end of 1983, and then um, in '84. The rhythm section got sacked. The drummer and bass player got sacked. Um, and that was really, um, I mean, that's a complicated story, really, but I'll try and, you know, make it simple, is that, um, you know, the Men at Work was six people. There were five musicians and one manager. And um, the manager, Russell, was my friend who I met, met at university who, um, you know, said then in 1976, uh, if you ever get a band together, I'll, I'll hustle for you. So that was the basis of our deal, really. And then when, when, we, when we became very famous in 1982, 1983, um, you know, the rhythm section, uh, Jerry and John, they didn't really care for Russell that much and wanted to um, either sack him or put him on a salary instead of commissioning. And... Uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, he was my friend and I wasn't going to go along with that. So it was just one of those things where it was these these camps, uh, different camps within the band started to started to appear. And, you know, you know, fissures started to started to appear in the in the within the band. And um, it just it just kind of. It wasn't really didn't it just didn't feel like a band anymore you know it felt weird and strange you know and um, I wanted to leave and uh, and Russell said well you know what are you going to leave for it's your band and we got to the end of the, the nineteen eighty three tour and um, we all just went home and then Greg and Ron and I and Russell got together and decided that we wanted to keep going but we didn't want to work with. Uh, Jerry and John anymore, so they got the sack, which in retrospect was probably a you know quite a quite a big mistake, um, in, in not only in sacking them but in in the way we did it. Um, we we probably 
could have uh, should have sat down with some kind of some kind of mediating force and and worked out the the issues because the issues weren't really that important they, they really never are in bands you know it's it, everything becomes spinal tap very quickly you know <laughs> and uh, you don't think it will but it really does and um <clears throat> so really the men at work was really that that combination of people um the five musicians and russell that that's that's really what men at work was for me we made another album greg and uh ron and i although ron left halfway through that album and um he just went home one day and didn't come back. <laughs> and then we, the third album came out and didn't do much. And then Greg had had enough. And it was just, you know, the, the, it just kind of, there was no band left. And so no band left to leave. Um, so it was really done uh, by, by then. It was, you know, by certainly when Greg left, I think Greg left, you know, in 84, 85 or something. And um, I didn't really want to be in Men at Work anymore. To, I mean, I was, it was, I was quite relieved, to be honest. Well, I, as I always say to our students, you know, creative differences, business differences, all of this stuff is real. Um, and, you know, back in the, those pre-internet 80s, right, when information was scarce, you know, I looked at each new album coming out thinking, hey, they're alive and well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, looking back on those two records we did, I mean, um, uh, you know, Ron was a really inventive, interesting guitar player and didn't sound like anyone else. Um, <clears throat> you know, Jerry, the drummer Jerry was, you know, heavily influenced by Phil Collins, but was also, <clears throat> you know, a great drummer in, in you know, within, with, you know, in his own right. Um, and Greg was a wonderful a musician, wonderful sax player, and had his own sound. And, you know, I've worked with many musicians since that time, and everyone plays that, you know, saxophone hook, to, who can it be now, their own way, but nobody, nobody plays it like Greg. And um, so everyone had their thing within that band. And uh, so I think that's really what, what went towards... You know, I'd, I'd say, for example, I, I took the song "Who Can It Be Now" or or um, uh, "Down Under" or, or or "Overkill" to the band, and here's here's the song. You know, and I played the original saxophone line on guitar. You know, and um, and you take it to rehearsal on a Tuesday, and you go, "Here's a song." And you would play it that night uh, and when you would play out at whatever, wherever you were playing because everyone just fell into what they did and all of a sudden there is the song. Uh, not only there is the song, but there is everyone's contribution to it, um, including, say, Greg playing the sax line, which all, which all of a sudden, you know, takes, takes it to another level. Well, in his saxophone uh, adornments, always coalesce so well with your voice. That's right. That is, that is correct. And I, it's funny you say that, you know, because I, I met Greg before he started playing the saxophone and, um, I would go and visit him in this house he lived in, which was, you know, 15 or 20 minutes from where I lived. And during, this is this during the seventies when I was at university and he was at, you know, he was at college as well. And he lived, and he, and he and he used to practice out in the back room of the house that he shared with other these other people. 
and I'd go visit and um, and I'd say, uh, oh, you know, it's Greg here, and they, you know, go in and looking for Greg to say hi. They go, oh yeah, he's he's, he's practicing. So I would just let him practice. I'd just hang in the house because I knew the other people there, and I would listen to him for a while. And it really reminded. It's funny you should say that because it really the way he played and the sound that he had. It really reminded me of my voice. Huh. And um, and I would listen to him for a while. And uh, I always I thought then, well, if I ever do something, um, I'll get Greg to to play with me, you know, because um, I know you know I I loved him as a person. He was a great great guy, and he was great entertainer, great performer. But he also played interesting instruments. He could play guitar. He could play everything pretty much. He could play guitar. He could play keyboards. And, but flute and sax were his were his instruments. But he did have his own particular sound on the sax, which was which um, which I really loved. <clears throat> it's funny. I was I was in the studio the other day, and I pulled up a track that that um, that he played on one of the when when he when we were touring together in in. Um, 2000, uh, 21, you know, 22 years ago or something. And I hadn't listened to it for years. And um, it was re- it made me it upset. It was very upsetting, to be honest, because I just, I wasn't, un- I was unprepared for it. And he was um, talking as well on the track. So I had them, I had them speaking and playing. It was quite, um, you know, it was a, it was a moment. It must have felt like a, a voice beyond the grave, right? in many ways. Yeah, but it was just very, it was very, um, you know, it was like, you know, he was, he was, he was alive. He was so alive. He was alive. You know, it's funny. Cause I, I was, I, um, I mean, I hear him every day. I hear him. I hear him when I go into supermarkets all the time. And so he's never far away. How did the uh, so tell me how your collaboration with Ringo and the All Star Band how that came about? That's been such a, a fruitful experience. I've seen you guys twice uh, on various legs of of your tours. Um, well, I was just driving along. Where was I? I was driving on um, Santa Monica Boulevard, or was it? Uh, no, yeah, it was Santa Monica Boulevard, and um, I got a call. Um, and asking if I wanted to go out, um, or actually asking if I wanted to talk to um, the musical director from Ringo's Ringo's band, you know, and would I like to go on tour? And so, you know, you kind of think about it for three seconds and say, yes, I'd like to do that. So that was in 2003, and... Um, um, that was, that's how it came about, you know, and, um, you know, what, you know, what, what they do and what he does, he, he kind of oversees everything and, and you have to have had hits on your own and you, on, and you have to be able to still play them and still sing and, um, still stand up straight. And, um, so I just did that one tour, you know, and then didn't get asked back. So I, you know, I did a television special with him, but. Um, I thought, oh well, maybe once is enough. If that's if that's all that um, he wanted from me, that's cool, you know. Um, I thought maybe you know he was less than in love with what I did, but you know that was a maybe a, a just a moment that I that I had, 
I'm not sure if it's true or not, but anyway, they asked me. He, you know, they asked me to come back in 2008, and uh, I did that. And um, then I didn't um, get asked back for another ten years. And um, mind you, you know, I'm not sitting around. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not sitting around waiting for the call. You know, um, there were lots of other things and that, that were happening, but. But it is, it, is, it is always nice to, to get the call, you know. So I got the call again in, eight, in, nine, in 2018, and I've been doing it since then. Mind you, it's, you know, been interrupted by the pandemic. But we did we got a couple of tours in before the before that virus hit, and, uh, and we're going back out uh, in uh, this year, <clears throat> May, June. I love watching you guys, and and I love the first of all the whole idea of the all star band is brilliant, right? It's it a is, way yeah. to curate wonderful music and bring it together. And um, my wife and I loved. Uh, we saw you in Atlantic City, I think, the last time, and um, just the way that you know you step up and would sing on Toto songs, or yeah. <laughs> you know, or Oye Como Va, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It's a blast. Completely, yeah. I mean, those songs are, that's the other thing is you get to be a, you know, you get to be a sideman for for everyone else's songs, <clears throat> which is, you know, it's um, it's good for you. It's good for you to play other people's songs. And Rinko seems to be having an absolute blast. Well, he does, you know, he does. And um, you turn around and, in my case, if I'm playing Who Can It Be Now or Down Under and he's playing along and with Bissonette. And, um, you know, he's always engaging. He's always looking at you and you always know that he's, um, he's into it, 100%. I'm very excited about your, your new album. Your song with Ringo, of course, is now available. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? It... Uh, it, it seems, and maybe I'm going too far with this, so correct me when I'm wrong, but um, one of the things I love about your solo shows is they're a combination of amazing, wonderful music, but also your kind of deadpan delivery about not just your story, but all of our stories about life and the ups and downs, etc. And this one seems to have a philosophical bent to it. Well, it was written, uh, well, the lyrics anyway were written, you know, when the pandemic hit and it was kind of, you know, there was that moment where before uh, really, before they had the vaccine. Yes. And everyone was kind of, well, justifiably so, kind of freaking out and thinking, well, this has the potential to kill me. So everything became quite, you know, focused, everything came into focus, you know, who who you loved, who you wanted to spend time with, who you didn't want to spend time with. And and um, there was an immediacy about, about things, you know, about just being careful but getting things done. And so I think that that song just, uh, the lyrics anyway, came along um, about... Um, mortality in that sense of trying to 
you know, it's, in a lot of ways, it's like trying to make sense of the senseless. You know, when you think when you think about that, when you think ahead, when you think about okay, the little bit before you pass on, or the fact, oh, the universe keeps going uh, without me. Uh, how rude! Um, <laughs> um, and just um, things like telling people that you telling people that you uh, that you love that, that you love them. In fact, you know, and uh, um, being in the moment, so to speak, and the idea that perhaps this was what life was going to be now. You know, that feeling of oh, this is just going to be. We're going to be faced with this from now, from this point on. Right, like. I now live in a dystopian novel. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, you know, we're going to have to keep masks on. We're going to have to not shake people's hands anymore and keep our distance, and which, uh, you know, which is a very wise thing to do, but it's a, it's a very different way to live from what we've known. And musically, uh, it, it was something that took me back to when I was a child, I guess, because there used to be a... a Salvation Army that used to sing outside my door every day. And um, musically, it just took me back to that to that part of my life, to that time in my life when, of course, I was being, you know, mesmerized by the Beatles. So um, even melodically, it's, 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 I think it's really unashamedly <clears throat> influenced by the Beatles. And, um, and so when I came up with the music, I just had it on my iPhone. I always, I always imagined um, Ringo playing on it. You know, I could hear him playing on it. And so I finished the song. I even had another friend of mine come and play drums on it, which sounded great. You know, but then I thought, oh, I'll just ask. I'll ask Ringo if um, if he'll play on it. So I just, you know, um, did that. Uh, called and said. Um, would he play on the song? Yeah, send it over. Yeah, great. So, um, so that's what happened. <laughs> Onward, Christian soldiers. Yeah, <laughs> marching us to war <laughs> with the cross of Jesus. <laughs> is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.